0: I'm Bill Mitchell and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. I was recently interviewed on a nationally known podcast called The Only One in the Room. This is a powerful interview because it's clear the host did their homework, asked insightful questions, understood the subject, and listened carefully. This is the first part of the interview with Scott.
1: Bill is here talking about how his daughter was murdered in 2005 by her boyfriend. And Bill has written a book about possibly seeing the signs of this and educating people as to what dating violence might look like. So I think it's a really important conversation. I haven't read your book, Bill. I'm ashamed to admit I'm a little afraid of it. Laura typically reads in bed to me often of a lot of the material. And she read me part of this the book last week. My daughter, who is now living in Los Angeles on her own, she's been here about four years. She's the oldest one. Didn't answer a text on a Thursday afternoon. And I honestly went straight into like... Where's Lily? You know, and then it wasn't until the next day, actually, that I started looking for her. And I went to, I'm good friends with the place she works. And the reason I'm bringing this up, Bill, is that I think we've had other episodes where people have come on and talk about loss. And it's interesting because the numbers sometimes go down because people don't want to face this subject matter. They don't want to listen to the story. I equated my reaction to you know, that time when Lily didn't answer the text to when I actually got into action as, as sort of a small example of that in my own life where I'm like, you know, I don't want to think about this and I don't want to confront it. I want to believe that everything's okay. Uh, in the interview, you say, when you first met this guy, there was this deep intuitive piece of you that was that knew something was off about him, but you trusted your daughter more than that thought at the moment. And you tell the story really well. And I I just wanted you to maybe explain a little bit more about that feeling I had and what you can offer somebody like me, who has two daughters, who has to go through this all the time, every time there's a text not answered or a boyfriend that I'm suspicious of, or anytime my daughters are hiding information from me, I get like all of my spider senses come up, you know? (laughs) You know, the, the best thing I can say about all of this is
0: that from a parent's standpoint, learning as much as you can about dating violence learning as much as you can about how to detect things like this is it's really it's a really a great thing because the statistic is that one in 3 women will suffer serious physical harm from an intimate partner during their lifetime typically between the ages of 16 and 24 okay i mean that's a that's a big number by the way that's yeah. huge i mean 33% I mean, come on, I've said that in some of my speeches, and I'll look around let's say i mean how many how many women are in this room right now? You know I've had times I've had hundreds of people who are high school kids, so there are hundreds of women, so therefore a third of them chances are will go through something. But what I say is, even if it doesn't happen to your own child, which it probably won't, it could be happening to one of their friends, so it still makes sense for you to know about this. Your daughter could come to you and say, wow, you know, my friend Mary's got this boyfriend and he does this and he does that and he does that. And you're thinking, whoa, sounds like one of those situations. So you still want to be ready. You still want to be that person who knows what's going on. The other thing about it is that going back to the spider sense and and feelings I had is that I tell people all the time that if you feel something is wrong, do something, act on it. Try to figure out something because you may not get that other chance. I mean, I've kicked myself about that guy. you know I had that feeling on a on a, a Saturday at the graduation, and the following week I said something to someone at work about it. And we talked about it a little bit and it, it really didn't go anywhere, but it was still on my mind.
1: Can I ask, had there been any sort of like had the police been called? Had there been a domestic situation between them at some point? was no, there nothing Nothing. So had there been like an emotional sort of abuse that had occurred where you sensed that maybe he treated her unfairly about issues? I did not meet him until graduation day. The only advanced warning we
0: had was a phone call my wife had with my daughter some weeks before that asking about this boyfriend. And my daughter said, well, it's not the perfect relationship to tell you the truth, mom. And my wife figured what I would have figured, which is, well, I guess that means it's not going to last very long. You know, Kristen was 21, wasn't the first guy she dated or broke up with. So not the perfect relationship doesn't make you call the police and doesn't make you jump in your car and drive 125 miles and say, what was that supposed to mean? But what it does tell me today is to say, well, okay, it's not the perfect relationship. Well, what is it? You know, that's when, again, you want to become a great question asker, not an interrogator, though. You have to, it's a thin line between asking leading questions and interrogating and getting a hot lamp and a cigar and blowing smoke in their face because that's just not going to do it. And the other thing too, by the way, in asking questions is you don't want to pounce on that person and say, oh my God, you got to get away from him. You don't want to be a judge because that person
1: has to figure it out. They have to feel like I need to get away from him. Laura is actually very good at that. She walks that line really well with her kids. She asks, she's curious with concern, but it's undetectable for the most part. <laughs> and I've yeah, learned right. a lot about that. I have actually learned a lot about I'm that. I'm sure lately. she's used that on you. And- <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I just admire your mission to continue to educate people and bring people into this. You speak about this in a way that is very easy to listen to and very inclusive. And I, I really appreciate that. I think. Thank you. Precursors to emotional abuse, like the way people treat people is becoming more more talked about, right? Like it used to be, there had to be a, pl- a phone call. There used to be, there had to be some domestic violence. There had to be some indication that things were going south before anybody did anything. And I think that, you know, that that one in three statistics shows that it doesn't always have to be that. And it is more easily prevented. Do you work directly with other people? I mean, obviously you're speaking to, to groups of people, but do you have people around the country who've called you or contacted you to help them? That's a really great, insightful question. I don't have a list of people
0: at any given time, but there's usually one or two that I have kind of an email conversation going with. There was somebody who who left her husband. I mean, this woman basically grabbed her two kids when he wasn't looking and went the other way. And she went from somewhere in the south. She never told me, but somewhere in the southeast and made her way all the way out west. It must have been like Arizona or someplace and was trying her best to stay away. In the meantime, of course, he's looking everywhere and calling her mother up and all that. But I was on emails. I bet I had 50 emails with her. I mean, 50 from me and 50 back. And she eventually went back to him. But I gave her enough coaching and warnings, and she thought that he had Potentially turn the corner. So she felt it was safe. And I could probably email her today and hear something back tomorrow, you know, that she still thinks it's okay. So I was worried for her. There's another one, too, who said that she tried to connect with different domestic violence agencies and was turned away, which I've never heard of but I connected her with one in Philadelphia and they are now, they have a conversation going.
1: We watched the uh, the show, The Maid. And I think The Maid is a really good example of something I didn't understand, which was this pursuit and how people portray themselves in front of other people. But yet behind the scenes, there's this control issue between the partners and there's, uh, there's abuse basically. And it really opened the door for me. And I think it's kind of it sounds to me a lot like where you exist in sort of helping people identify things that help that intuitive piece of them or or that protective piece of them step forward and take control instead of sitting back and letting things sort of pan out or, you know, like play out.
0: I just tell people all the time, learn as much as you can. And then if something, if you, if you, you know, it's kind of like if there's where, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? I mean, if I smelled smoke in this house, I'd get off this interview in a big hurry. I wouldn't say, well, look, you know. <laughs> Let's see what let's see what Scott's got to say and maybe maybe right. Laura has a few things she wants to say. You know, I'd get out of here. So I would pounce on it and I tell people, You better get moving. You know, you better get in touch with somebody. Cause really you just don't know what how fast that clock is ticking.
1: Yeah. And like you said, you were at graduation one moment and then you were in the store with three detectives the next moment and it happens just really fast.
0: We it, went to the graduation and just over three weeks later, we went to memorial service in the same building. Mm-hmm. Wow. At her school.
1: Wow. And parked on the same parking lot. The book is called When Dating Hurts, and you can find Bill Mitchell at whendatinghurts.com. What a great interview. Thank you so much for taking the time to share this story with us. And keep up the good work, man. And I'm going to not be afraid to confront my fears. I'm going to walk into that just based on your experience and your suggestions.
0: Yeah. All I can tell you is try to have gentle dialogue with your kids. You know, there's nothing like a car ride when it's just the two of you and see if you can kind of wander into areas maybe you haven't talked about so much before. I love it. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you both. This part is with the other host, Laura. When I first shook his hand and I looked at him, I thought, I'd never want to tangle with this guy. I immediately thought of being in a fight with him. And I don't think I've met too many people in my life that I immediately picture physically having an altercation. And I did with him. June 3rd's tough, we don't do much on June 3rd except visit the grave. I didn't know about dating violence. I couldn't fill a thimble with what I knew about domestic violence, but knowing what I know now, they're right out of the classic list of warning signs about controlling and dominant behavior and people who are extremely jealous and possessive, but I just didn't know any better.
2: What if, 20 days after your daughter graduated from college, you got a call from a detective asking if they could meet with you? Author, speaker, and activist Bill Mitchell met with that detective and got the news that every parent dreads that his daughter, Kristen, had been murdered by her ex-boyfriend. But what would you do if after you'd written her eulogy, after the funeral, after her killer was sentenced and imprisoned, the agony of her absence was still the most present thing in your life? Would you shut the world out and do everything you could to keep the rest of your family safe? Or would you and your wife hit the road and go to high schools and colleges everywhere, alerting others to the warning signs of dating violence? Hi, I'm Laura Cathcart-Robbins, and this is The Only One in the Room, an independent podcast supported by you, our Patreon community members. Please see our show notes to find out more about joining our Patreon, or if you'd like more information about anything in this episode. This podcast is for anyone who has ever felt alone in a room full of people, which is to say that this podcast is for everyone. We're talking to Bill Mitchell, and I'm never the only one in this room because, as usual, my boyfriend, producer, and co-host, Scott Slaughter, is here as well. So we are talking to author, speaker, and advocate, Bill Mitchell, whose book, When Dating Hurts, tells the story of how he lost his daughter, Kristen, to dating violence. And again, Bill, thank you so much for coming on to the show. This is such an important topic, and I have a lot of questions to ask you. But So the email that I got from you said, my name is Bill Mitchell. My daughter was murdered by her ex-boyfriend in 2005. It was 20 days after her college graduation. A parent's worst nightmare was ours for the remainder of our lives. I really just have to tell you that while I was preparing for this, reading your book, which is right here next to me, When Dating Hurts, you inscribed it to me. Hi, Laura. It is my heartfelt hope that reading this memoir will bring greater awareness to dating violence to those who need it most than Bill. Yes, yes. And I got to tell you, I mean, I don't know if I'm one who needs it the most, but it really brought, I was in my feelings when I read your memoir. I have two boys. They're 22 and 24. Scott has two girls. I call them my bonus daughters. They're 18 and 22. And it was very difficult to read this and make it about you. I kept making it about me. I kept drawing these parallels in our lives. So I just wanted to say that kind of at the top. I stayed in that state for about, probably about a day afterwards, just kind of reverberating in the feelings that you describe so well in your book. And and I'm going to let you talk about it in just a second. I just wanted to start you off by saying that Kristen had just graduated from college when she was murdered and we're all coming up to graduation time again. That's right. Yeah. Scott's daughter, Lily, will be graduating my son's girlfriend is graduating in the same class. And then his other daughter, Nora, was graduating from high school. So this is all happening in real time for us. But Kristen had just graduated from college. and She was murdered by her ex-boyfriend, who you call Nick in the book, because I understand that you rather not use his real name.
0: I never use his real name. Yes.
2: Yeah. I know you were there for her graduation, but can you tell us how you found out that she'd been murdered? Tell us that story.
0: Well, the way I found out to to answer just that part for you was that I had gone through an entire Friday, June 3rd, 2005. It was art directed by Hollywood from the standpoint that it rained all that day. And now it was in the evening and it was, it was dark. It was like eight or nine o'clock, which if the weather were better, probably be fairly nice out here, but it was, it was raining and I was driving. I had just left my parents at a restaurant. And I received a call from a a woman, and it was a, a, a police detective, lieutenant, and she told me she needed to tell me something, and I had a lot of thinking to do. I'm driving along, it's raining, the windshield wipers are going, and I'm thinking, okay, I got a police person talking to me. I've got a woman detective. Not that that couldn't happen, but that was a little more to chew on. It's like sometimes I say to people, when you hear hear male nurse, it takes a moment, you know. Sometimes. So I was thinking, who is this person? And the other part of it was, that in the trinity of things, the process was I said, well, what are you calling me about? And it was, well, I can't tell you over the phone. And we've been to your house several times, and no one was there. No one was there. So I found out at a. At a grocery store i picked a grocery store because i thought if if this person shows up and it's some crazy person you know who just wants to single me out and break my kneecaps or something i don't know i thought i'll i'll do it at least where people might be so she pulled up in a uh, a silver honda and she got out and then this great big guy got out he was wearing a suit turns out he was another detective and then two more people got out of another car like I got four people walking up to me. The other two turned out to be bereavement counselors. Mm. So she said, Well, do you want to sit in my car and, and let me talk with you? Even though I saw badges, I thought, I'm not getting in anybody's car because I'm not trusting anything tonight. I said, If you're going to tell me something, just why don't you just tell me here? So that's where where I got the the words, Miss, you know, Mr. Mitchell, I'm sorry to inform you, your daughter was murdered earlier today mm. by her boyfriend. So yeah.
2: Right. Just like that. Just like that. And it's, it's really, it's fascinating to read your accounting of that and how it went. And I know you were at like the giant supermarket, right?
0: It was. Yes.
2: Yeah. I didn't establish this at the beginning. You were in Maryland.
0: Yes. Okay. we right, were and outside of Baltimore in Maryland. Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And
2: then Kristen had just gotten an apartment in, in Philadelphia.
0: Yes. She went to school at St. Joseph's University to the west of Philadelphia. Her apartment was in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. She was going to start at General Mills at Dresher, Pennsylvania.
2: Okay. Okay. So she was in another state, but not very far away. She
0: was about 125 miles away. Which to go and see her, you know, you had to plan a little bit. That wasn't the biggest deal, but I mean, it—you you just didn't see her every weekend. So
2: right. Did you have an inkling? Like I—I I know, if I got anything suspicious, I would immediately check on all my loved ones. You know, if I got a suspicious call or something, we, I would, I would call like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Did you have an inkling when they called that it might be Kristen?
0: Not at all. No, didn't occur to me at all. I thought that someone on our street, someone on our cul-de-sac in this development that I'm in, I thought maybe something really awful happened and that they were tracking down everybody on the street to ask questions about, you know, of anything about this thing, or, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have a clue. And I called my wife, and she was at a graduation party with my son near Washington, and I knew I would never get her because her phone was figured tucked away in a purse or handbag and wouldn't hear it. So I called my son, talked with him. He walked the phone over to her, and then she said, well, is it about Kristen? Mm. So even though I didn't have any of that instinctual stuff, she definitely did, and I said, well, why would it be about Kristen? These are local police calling me. These aren't Philadelphia police calling right, me. Right. Well, what I did know is, of course, the Philadelphia police, detectives, everybody up there was checking around here to, to basically track us down. And they yeah. happened to catch up with me first. Had my wife and son not been at that party, they would have been home and these detectives would have gotten to them before me. And they wanted to meet me here at the house. And I just thought, "Nah." You know, it's a dark, seriously dark and rainy evening. And I just thought, I don't know what's going to happen outside of my house if I pull up. But I will tell you just one thing on, on a point you made, which is the book, you kind of found yourself in the book. with Two things. When the book was first written, it was written, and you have to process this for a second, it was written in the second person. So the book that you read, which is the book, was written in the first person. And of course, there's the third person. So the first person is I say I, and I say we, and I say us. I was walking down the street and I went to to my house. And then, of course, third person would be Bill was walking down the street and he then went into his house. Second person, and I wrote 100 pages before I stopped this and then changed it, was you're walking down the street and you go into your house. That's the way I wrote it because I wanted so badly for the reader to become me and see the whole world through my eyes. Mm. I wanted to take you with me. I didn't want to let you go. And I wanted to to kind of if if you would stay with the book force you to see it the way I saw it, and I wanted the book to portray this as being such an emotional upheaval and be so painful that if you're a parent reading it, you're saying the whole time, "Oh my God, I'd never want this to happen to my family you know so what can I do and in the end of the book it at the very end, then you see all kinds of things about warning signs and the book becomes much more of a straight general information. But so what happened is I'd shifted it because some people said, I don't get this you thing you're doing. You know, they just, my friends told me, my wife told me too, but I resisted it for the longest time. And then finally I, I had enough people who I believed in who said, Bill, let this thing go, just write it in the first person. So, but I think I still achieved what I set out to do by doing that. I mean, you're telling me that. So
2: Yeah, it's very powerful. It's extremely powerful. And and everything that you said that you intended for the reader to experience, I did. So you definitely hit your goal. So just to remind our listeners, Nick is the name that you've given to Kristen's ex-boyfriend, but it's not his actual name, but I'm going to use it for the purpose of this interview. The first time you met him was at her graduation. Is that correct?
0: First time, yes.
2: 20 days before she was murdered, that's the first time you met her murderer.
0: Yeah, we're introduced. We shake hands. I'm taking pictures of him with Kristen. He's taking pictures of us with Kristen and all kinds of stuff. And in, in the following week, exchanging emails, sharing pictures.
2: What was your impression of him?
0: Well, that's interesting because my initial impression, not anticipating anything, is when I first shook his hand and I looked at him, I thought these words, and you saw them in the book, I'd never wanna tangle with this guy. I immediately thought of being in a fight with him. And he looked what I call gym rat tough. I mean, he looked like a guy who knew how to work the weight benches and all this stuff. And he's a few inches taller besides and much younger. But but I I, I don't think I've met too many people in my life that I immediately picture physically having an altercation. And I did with him.
2: Now, yeah, that was some some premonition of yours. He gave her a a graduation present. What was that?
0: Well, she was moving into a new apartment, and he did have uh, a good ability to cook. So he knew a lot about cooking and chefing and whatever. And so, yeah, he, he bought her one of those wooden blocks with kitchen knives in it.
2: What I found out later in your book was that she was stabbed 55 times. Is that correct?
0: Yes, she was. Yeah. Stabbed or slashed. And many of them were in her back, which which the detectives and the prosecutor said clearly she was trying to get away.
2: Yes. And the other thing that you mentioned, your your wife and your son, but one of the things that comes across really powerfully in the book is how close the four of you are, that it was for years, it was you and your son and your wife. Do you mind if we say their names?
0: No, of course not. Okay. Go ahead. Um,
2: so yeah, David and, and Michelle and Kristen and you were like this foursome I think you were admired by other families for being this very, and in your relationship with Kristen, as it goes through the book, you can see how close you were. So you were the foursome for all those years. And then all of a sudden, they're three. How did you all get through those first few weeks? We
0: became a really tight unit without ever having to, you know, we didn't talk about like, wow, we really have to stick together. I mean, we just, we had this project ahead of us starting that night that we learned into the next day of having to go to interview funeral homes and literally look at caskets and and make decisions and go to graveyards and all this kind of stuff that you never want to do ever. But we just somehow we just fit together even better than ever and could practically finish each other's sentences. And I remember thinking this, this happened on a Friday night, but it was somewhere around Monday evening. No, we couldn't do the funeral right away because her body was held as evidence for a a number of days. Mm. So she died on a Friday, well, very early in the morning on a Friday. We didn't learn to Friday night. She wasn't buried till Thursday of the following week. So uh, six days later. But I remember at one point late on Monday evening saying, I can't, believe how well we're all getting through this. I mean, we were just had such clarity, all three of us in our minds. My son was 17 back then. Mm-hmm. He's now twice that, but everybody just seemed to know what to do, you know, yeah. not what to do, how to do it, how to support each other, you know, cause you just haven't practiced that before in, under these
2: circumstances. So no, I bring this up this point in the interview, because at that point, you all didn't really know the specifics of what had happened. You knew some of it, but you didn't know all of it. The timeline of what had happened—did you know that in those first few days?
0: You know, a lot of the information came soon. Okay, I talk with these detectives, and then then I did sit in this female detective's car, Vicky, and I spoke with the lead detective at that time in Philadelphia, and he and he told me a fair amount, even though it was still only like a matter of hours later. I mean, it was, She was killed around 3 a.m. The police didn't know until about 9 a.m. And now it's about 9 in the evening, 12 hours later. But still, in a case like that, it's pretty early. But I had a fair amount of information. You know, they had already caught up with this guy and interviewed him.
2: Well, and he had gone to the ER.
0: Yeah. So what happened was, it seems like he did what he did at around 3 a.m. Yeah. And what happened, even though he brought the fury that he did, as you mentioned, the number of times that she was stabbed or slashed.
2: Mm
1: Mm-hmm
0: but she did not die immediately. She, mm. It seems from his, his recollection of what happened, and I don't trust the guy very much at all. But in this case, the fact that he said she, she probably lingered as much as 45 minutes. Uh. So I kind of take that as maybe that really did happen. But then after that, he spent really the next three hours or so just figuring out his plans. What is he going to do? He even took a shower, changed clothes, and created a story that it was a self-defense situation. And then he actually created evidence by cutting himself. And then somewhere along the line called his siblings. And right. they both said, well, if you're injured that badly, you better get to the hospital. And so he called another, another girlfriend, as it turns out an ex-girlfriend from some time before that, who came to the apartment, took one step in, saw some of what was in there and took one step out. It's like, I'm not going in there. So she helped him one way or another get to the hospital. And Mm -hmm. when he got in there, he talked about what happened. And they asked, well, what happened to the other person? And he said, well, she's in the apartment and I think she's dead. And so it seems like admitting nurses in hospitals must have a floor switch or some kind of a switch they can hit that tells the police inside there, get over here right now. And so they got him. And then they got local police and then they got the detective who I actually spoke with later that day to come in. And, and so they put him in the ER and they had to attend to him. And the fact that he had a fairly serious cut on his neck, which he claimed he tried to kill himself. Mm. And in the end, the, the uh, medical examiner could never really talk about that because by the time the medical examiner caught up with him, he was already stitched up by the ER doctor. So, whether that was self done or not, no one will ever really know except the guy that did it.
2: Mm. So, this was an unfathomable violent attack. And the attacker is now in custody at this point in your story. Why didn't you all want to see it go to trial?
0: There were a number of reasons. I would say at the top of the list was that if you have a really firm grip on what premeditated murder is, we didn't think this was that. Even though it was 55 wounds it seemed like it was fairly continuous. And there's no way we believe, nor did the prosecutor, that he went there with an intent to kill anybody. Now, premeditated murder is a very tricky area because you could be in a situation where something's happening and then there's a period of time when there's nothing happening. No, you're breathing heavily like, what the heck just happened? And then you decide to kill someone And you do, that is premeditated murder. But we never heard anything that was convincing enough to feel that it was. Okay, so now you have a guy in this case who's willing to step up to what's called in Pennsylvania third degree murder. And third degree is not first degree premeditated, nor is it not second degree. Second degree murder would be as if, let's say, I went into a bank to rob a bank, and on the way out of the bank, I shoot people, shoot security people and kill them, that would be second degree. So second degree murder is murder committed in the midst of a felony, but it seems like the person who did it didn't go to kill. They went to commit a felony. For instance, a rape situation, somebody rapes somebody, but it gets out of hand and they wind up killing them. That's second. And so you have premeditated, you have second. And third, the way they put it is it's murder. It's just not first or second. So this looked like it would go to third. Okay, now, the reason we did this was this. For number one, we couldn't get premeditated. We didn't believe, at this house, at least. Secondly, you have a guy pleading to third. So he's willing to plead to murder, guilty of murder, and he would get, in the bad part, 15 to 30 years. So if you do the math, this happened in 2005, and 2020 already passed, so he already did his fifteen. And then there are parole board reviews they are annual within certain parameters. Anyone can participate in these reviews, but they are annual. It's an annual heart attack. Mm. So they decide every year. So the first year they decided you'll at least do one more year. And then the second year they decided you'll do at least a year and a half. And that's the way it goes. So, so, uh wow. you know, and then if he, if in fact he is still in at year 30, then. Unless he has some kind of infractions against him in prison, then they'll release him,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, 13 years from now.
2: At his sentencing, he said, my words aren't significant enough, but that's all I ever think about. Every single day, every minute, every second, every hour. I loved her. And in response to that, in the book, you say, I sense this coming from his heart. This man will likely be locked away for no less than 15 years, likely longer a cinder block hell. What a miserable future he made for himself. Was this you finding compassion for him? Was that what I was reading there?
0: I did, but I got over it really quickly. Mm. No, I, I got swallowed up in it.
2: You know, I, I think what
0: happens is when something, something this devastating takes place, this life-changing takes place, that you're thinking you want to hold on to anything. You you know, you you, you can't have her. He knew her. He liked her. I guess he, in his mind, he loved her. He had a lot of baggage, you know. He would not have been good for her had had they gone on at all. But I got caught up in what he said up there. I guess I wanted to hear certain things, and I did. And so when when that sentencing plea and sentencing hearing was over with, and and my wife and I and my son also got up and spoke, I was standing outside and I talked with some reporters. It was in a hallway, and. When I was finished, the uh, the prosecutor who had been handling the case all along virtually spun me around and shook her finger in my face and told me, don't believe a word. that." In effect, she didn't say it this mm. way, but don't believe a word that comes out of his mouth. And I realized at that moment, oh, my God, I've been manipulated like he manipulates everybody else. Yeah. I mean, I fell prey. So I, I don't feel the least bit sorry for this guy at all. Mm. I mean, but I mean, I had about a half an hour of it, but I, I got over it and and thank God the prosecutor kind of like, um, you know, verbally slapped me around to, to wake me up. She did me a huge favor. She's absolutely right. I have no, I have, I have no forgiveness for this guy. Yeah. I mean, I know what, uh, you know, our church would want and everything, but you can't, I don't think you can fake it.
2: I don't think you can either.
0: There was a line you probably saw in the book that came from a detective named Jim McGowan, who's also the detective I spoke with that first night. Okay, so when he does his interviews, like he did the day of the murder, said this to me in a phone call some years later, just a few years ago. He said, every time I interview somebody after a murder, I walk away and say, why did that person do it? Did they do it because something precious was taken away from them? Did they do it because they were on drugs and they didn't know what they were doing? They were just flailing, and someone else got in the way. You know, they needed the money that badly. Whatever it is, and he said about this guy, in these words, and I put these in the book. He's evil. He's just pure evil. This guy is pure evil. And when I heard that, I, I was shocked by that. This detective is a very deep guy. I really got to know him.
2: Well, and he's witnessed a lot of things. So for for him to make that evaluation. That feels very powerful, too. It feels like it means something coming from him. Right. I wanted to ask you, we had kind of talked about this a little bit, but in the 19 days before her death, Nick sent Kristen an email that you now say was full of warning signs. And in response to her email, telling you things like Nick is acting really jealous. He kept calling and not trusting me all day. Nick is really annoying. It's hard to deal with someone who seemed to be getting more and more controlling and not giving space to me. Your email back to her, you say, you tell her to reassure Nick that he's important to her. And the fact that he's a little jealous is a good thing. And just be honest with him and it should work out. And the first thing I want to say about these emails, which you have in the book for anyone who buys this book, you'll be able to read them there. I was so struck by how close you were. These were emails being exchanged well into the night. This was not, you know... This was like you guys going back and forth, like old friends, like, you know, the most trusted people, like it was just, I was so struck by how close you were. And then the other thing was your advice to her sounds very reasonable, reasonable parent advice to me, but tell me what it is that you would do differently now.
0: You know, you go back to the book, I, I put what was in the emails, literally what was in the emails. And I forget exactly right now, without the book in front of me, how I characterize myself. But it's sort of like, you know, this, gee whiz, what a nice dad, you know, kind of stuff I wrote. It should work out. It should be just fine. You know, this type of thing. But that's just, that's just naivete in that case. Because I didn't know about dating violence and I didn't know, really, I couldn't fill a thimble with what I knew about domestic violence. But knowing what I know now, they they're right out of the classic list of warning signs about controlling and dominant behavior and people who are extremely jealous and possessive and people who are constantly texting, which he did quite a lot, and constantly calling her and doing things like that and checking up on her. But I just didn't know any better. And and I would say that nine and a half out of ten dads probably would have written a similar email to my daughter under those circumstances. It's like I mean, I mean, if you had somebody sit next to you saying, These are the warning signs of domestic violence and dating violence and unhealthy behavior, by the way. And she could wind up getting killed tonight, you know. Mm. And honestly, if I was sitting next to somebody who who had that email today, I'd come right out with it. I'd say, I know you're going to think this is really dramatic and this is ridiculous, but I mean, I've done that many times. I've verbally shaken people up and said, you know, this could be a lot worse than you think it is.
2: Yeah. But what would you have done? What action would you have taken? If I knew better, you mean? If you knew better.
0: Well, I would have stopped the emails and would have called her. The key to knowing what to do is, of course, educate yourself, like learn the warning signs and something I call the template every abuser uses. But I have a lot of those things in the book and I do talk about them a lot. But, but what you want to do is you want to get that person to talk. So if I knew what I was doing and I didn't, I would have called her and said, well, Tell me about, you know, what happens? What what makes you think he's acting jealous? What do you in your mind think is controlling behavior? You know, what would not be controlling? Like, what is he not allowing you to do?
2: So you would ask her to elaborate, get those details.
0: Yeah, the key is to ask leading questions. In doing it properly, you would come off sounding like a psychologist. Well, how does that make you feel? Well, how how often does that happen? Well, do your friends see this behavior? You know, you'd say those questions. Mm -hmm which would have been great questions because believe me, her friends saw everything mm. and they wanted to do some version of an intervention that weekend, but she was killed on a 3 AM on a Friday. So, and I'm not saying the intervention would have done the trick, you know, but, but maybe so. I mean, she was in the throes of breaking up and she got his key and his security card for the building away from him that day.
2: <sighs> Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I think that's so important. I think, that we have all not just even as parents but as friends had those conversations with our friends and not pushed it because we don't want to be seen as too dramatic or assuming anything or making trying to make the other person look bad or the potential abuser look bad we don't want to alienate the person we're talking to right so we want to candy coat it so that or or just not make it not make a big deal out of it even when our intuition is telling us, no, something's wrong. Something's wrong here.
0: Yes, you know, and I haven't had a lot of practice in that area, you know, because my one and only daughter is not here. But what I tell people to do, and and a lot of it is from talking with domestic violence counselors and domestic violence directors of agencies and reading books and all the things that go in the seminars. But but besides asking the leading questions, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get that person to arrive at a conclusion on their own that this relationship is not good for them. And I liken it to alcoholism from the standpoint of the person who is doing it has to bottom out. They have to finally get to the point where they look into themselves and say, I can't do this anymore, or they won't stop. The person in that relationship has to say, I can't do it with this person anymore. This is not working out. This is not what I pictured. This is not what I want. And then they have to get out safely, which is a whole other trick that needs uh, needs some help. You know, it needs coaching. You have to have an escape plan. You know, we haven't even touched on that, but that's important too, especially if somebody's that controlling, like this guy. I mean, Kristen did the classic thing wrong, which was break up with him alone in her apartment at night after a long day. So, you know, nobody wants to have that news delivered to them, you know, at midnight or beyond. I'm breaking up with you and, you know. not by yourself.
2: Yeah. You want to do that with with people for sure. Right. You also wrote this after this horrible man was put away in prison for only 15 to 20 years, we needed to decide whether to think only about us. This is you and, and your wife or your family, or think about other parents who might befall the same fate. So you decided to do speeches and spread awareness and education about dating violence You've made over 100 speeches before high schools, colleges, community groups, police organizations, and domestic violence agencies. First of all, thank you for that service. That is incredible service. I really admire that you took this tragedy and used it as an opportunity to educate other people so that it wouldn't happen in in our families or in their families. Not everybody's able to do that. So that's just one of the many things I was struck by in your book. But can you give us the stats on dating violence, murder? Just tell us how many women can expect to become victims of dating or domestic violence.
0: Yes, I can. It's really the only statistic I use. I learned the hard way from listening to other people give talks. If you load an audience up with statistics, you lose them. So I only use one. And that is that one in three women will experience serious physical harm at the hands of an intimate partner at some time in their lifetime and it typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24 years of age so when you look at your high school kids and you look at college kids then that's right in the that's the ground zero for it however i've met people who i mentioned 16 to 24 i've had you know fresh freshmen female freshmen in high school come up to me and say, you know, here's what's been going on with my boyfriend or here's what was going on. And I've talked with people, my God, who were in their sixties, you know, married, who experienced abuse for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It is a silencer though, isn't it? The people keep quiet about it. There's shame attached to it.
0: Yes. There's, there's embarrassment and there's shame. And a lot of people go it alone because of that reason. I know of people who were who were two girls who were in college their first year. They were twins and they were very close, but they got rooms apart so they could meet other people in different dorms. And the one was beaten to death by her boyfriend and the other one had no idea what she was going through. Although some mm. of her friends did, but her own twin sister did not right. know right. what was going on. So yeah, a lot of people just kind of go it alone and, and they don't think to call domestic violence hotlines. And, and, and that's really where... Everybody needs to turn first, by the way, is, is find a local hotline or call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which I can tell you quickly is 800-799-SAFE, safe. Safe, okay. 800-799, safe. They're there 24-7 and they're terrific. If someone's afraid to make that call, maybe they ask one of their friends to sit in with them. You can always hang up they're not going to send a SWAT team to your house if you say certain things, you know, so. That's
2: good to know, actually, because a lot of people don't know that. They think, because there's that law that when you show up for domestic violence, reporting that someone needs to go to jail, you have to make an arrest. And I don't know if that's everywhere, but I know it's in California.
0: No, I didn't know that, honestly. Yeah.
2: So there's a fear.
0: Things have changed quite a lot. You know, there was a time when when 911 calls were only really there to direct police to go to a house or, you know, in the domestic case. And now those tapes are held up as being at the highest level of uh, evidence in a, yes. in a case. Yeah, they are. Because because they look at it like that call was made just after something happened where mm-hmm. someone's yelling into the phone. My husband threw a lamp at me and kicked the cat and, you know, tried yeah. to choke me or something. Mm-hmm.
2: So So... As people are listening to this interview, we'll be approaching June 3rd, which is the anniversary of Kristen's death. You were quoted as saying that June 3rd is always a test and that you'll be glad to see the sunrise the following day. Is it the same for you this year as it always is?
0: It will be the same. May 14th is the date on which she graduated. So that's about when I start to feel like coming. Mm -hmm. And then... um, but yeah, yeah June third's tough. We don't do much on June 3rd except visit the grave. But it's, it's an endurance thing. And it's different. People say, what's it like now versus in the beginning? You know, in the beginning, you cry every morning and you turn on the cry and you turn it off almost immediately. It's really weird. I've never had that before. You know, you can just go into this place and all of a sudden, two minutes later, you're fine breathing normally. So the, the tears aren't the same. I always tell people it hurts as bad, but it just hurts differently because now there's just the pangs of loss. All of her friends that got married or, or had kids or, you know, they've all, you know, my God, it was 17 years ago. And in this house, you know, we're kind of in this time warp situation where we're still kind of like missing Kristen, you know, and in the meantime, her brother got married. So that was fabulous two and a half years ago and things have happened. It's very painful and it's, it, it didn't need to happen. And you can't help but separate the way it happened from missing her. You don't want something that horrible to happen to anybody, and yet it happened to your own child, who you know you you were there from nine months before she was born. You know, so it's it's tough. But you know that's that's really why the When Dating Hurts book was written, so that that people get caught up in the story, they like you did, see themselves in the story, learn what to do, learn who to call, learn how to detect this, and then really um find ways to to hand the book to their kids or read parts together some people do that some people prefer the audiobook there's the audiobook there's a the paperback there's the ebook and now there's the podcast with 40 episodes and they're all called when dating hurts and it's all on whendatinghurts.com so it's easy to find
2: that was actually going to be my last piece that I was going to talk about and you just did it for me i was going to talk about you wrote the when dating hurts book Last year you launched the When Dating Hurts podcast with 40 episodes. That's great. I listened to a few before we talked and you talk with these survivors. It's really good. You're a great interviewer. And then you published the When Dating Hurts audiobook this year, right?
0: Yes, I did. Yeah, just in January.
2: Just say it one more time where people can find you.
0: Well, the easiest place to get to me or get to information about what I'm doing is to go to wendatinghurts.com. Just that easy and You can get to the book through there. You can find ways to get to all the podcasts. You can just make, you can click something and just listen to it right there.
2: It really does. It houses everything and it makes everything really easy to find. And you can read stuff and you can listen and it's all right there. So, and Bill, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on to tell your story. Like I said, it was so powerful for me as a mom and a bonus mom. And I will be sharing it with people. I'll be sharing this episode with people who I believe will benefit from it as well.
0: That's the key thing is that once you get caught up in that story and you can see how to take it forward to help others, you know, that's it. It it was never really written. It wasn't written to make money. You know, it was written really because I felt I, I knew this would be happening to other people. I was trying to keep the number as low as possible. So that's really it. You know, that's that's where I get my energy it's I feel like I'm racing all the time to get things done and get podcasts done because those stories keep coming and I'm just trying to dial that number down you know, ter- It just makes me so sad every time you hear another incident of somebody who you know who paid for a bad relationship, an unhealthy relationship and and they didn't know it when they were in it but thank you for bringing me on. I appreciate this very much, both you and Scott thank you
1: Thank you bill. The
0: When Dating Hurts book was published in paperback in the middle of 2020, followed soon after by the ebook version. While those two were out there in the world informing about dating violence, in early 2021 I launched the When Dating Hurts podcast. Now in 2022, I'm publishing the When Dating Hurts audiobook. I did the narration myself because this is my family's story. It's also a story that can save one of your family members find the When Dating Hurts audiobook on Audible, Amazon, or iTunes. It's the same life-saving information from the print versions, but now in listening form. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. The When Dating Hurts audiobook is available now.